All right, um, we have a, a lot to get into today. Um, so if anyone walks in late, we'll just encourage them to watch or listen back on the recordings afterwards. Um, we are in the middle of modern continental philosophy, and we finally last week got into empiricism, or the beliefs that all ideas come via the five senses. And if we remember the empiricists, which we have over here on the right of the board, John Locke, George Barclay, and today David Hume, we're rallying against the rationalists. And the rationalists are those that believe that there are such things as innate ideas, that we're born with principles or knowledge that we don't need to take in through the senses, we just innately have it. Um, the rationalists were the guys like Descartes and Leibniz. And if you remember the, the rationalists, they were system builders. Descartes wanted to build a body of knowledge where he could know everything with indubitable certainty, know the world the same way we know mathematics. Leibniz followed up in the same way, and he wanted to build a whole system where we could understand the workings of the physical universe in the same way that we know mathematics. He talked about monads and monadology. Um, last week, we got the first presentation of the empirical theory of knowledge, the idea that knowledge only comes to us via the senses. And those ideas started with John Locke. And Locke Primary, his primary examples for why he believes that all knowledge comes via the senses where he said, close your eyes, try to think of a color you've never seen before. And nobody can do it. Right? You can't close your eyes and think of a color you've never seen before. He says, close your eyes, think of a shape you've never seen before. He says, you can't do that. All you can do is make conglomerations of the things you've already seen before. So that tells us that we have no innate ideas. We're not born with any principles. Everything we know, we know via the senses. But then Locke went into his explanation of once we take in these ideas via the senses, what type of ideas do we have? We have ideas that are vivid and some ideas that are slightly less vivid. He says when we look at this podium right here, this podium is made of what he would call primary qualities and secondary qualities. And do you remember the difference between primary and secondary qualities for the few of you that were here? All right, secondary qualities are those things that depend on the observer. Primary qualities are in the thing themselves. So a primary quality of this podium would be its oneness. There's one podium. It's color. It's black. Um, it is solid. Those are primary qualities. But this also has secondary qualities, right? It has a smell. It has a sound to it. It has a feel to it. But all those secondary qualities are what? They're dependent on me, right? It doesn't have a smell unless I'm there to smell it. It doesn't have a feel or the feel is dependent on the feeler. The sound is dependent on somebody being there to hear these things. So Locke says every physical idea in the world is made up of primary qualities and then secondary qualities. Barclay then comes along and wants to say there are no such thing as primary qualities. Everything is a secondary quality. Everything exists only in my head. There are no such thing as matter in the world. Everything is immaterial. The only thing that exists in the world are minds and spirits. Um, and if you remember, Barclay does this through a couple of different ways. Barclay says, well, Locke says a primary, a primary quality of this podium is color. But Barclay says color is not a real thing. And the reason he says color is not a real thing, if you look at my sister Sarah back there, she's wearing a bright yellow dress, and you say her dress is yellow. But Barclay would say, no, it's not yellow. It's yellow to you, but if we took her dress and we cut off a little piece of it and brought it to a laboratory, and we put it under a microscope, and we looked at the yellowness of the dress, what color is it? 
It's different depending on the magnification. At some magnifications, it's yellow. At some magnifications, it's green. At some magnifications, it'll be red. It'll be black at a deep magnification. So there is no actual real thing as color. Color is dependent on the individual. Right? If my dog looks at Sarah's dress, he looks at it and says, well, that's not yellow. It's a grayish color or a blackish color. And you say, oh, that's because he has different eyes. Well, yes, so do you. You have eyes that interpret these light waves and then say, well, that is a certain color. But color is not real. Color is dependent on you. And even further, Barclay says size is dependent on you. Locke would say this podium has a certain size, right? It's three feet tall, four feet tall. But Barclay says what? That size is dependent on your perception of it. Because if we take a ruler and we measure it right here, it says four feet tall, right? But if I measure it from the back of the narthex or from the back of the sanctuary here, you put up the ruler to it and you say, it's four inches tall. So size is something that's relative. It's dependent on the individual. So Barclay wants to go on to prove that there are no such thing as material things. Everything is immaterial. And all the things that we have in the world are just perceptions that God is giving us. He's implanting in our minds because we can't physically prove that anything exists. Right? Remember he said, can anyone prove to me that this thing is real? Well, every time you're going to prove to me that it's real, it's depending on you perceiving that thing. So how do we know it's there without you perceiving it? Barclay would say we have no way to do this. Now, the guys that we're going to talk about today are David Hume and Immanuel Kant. And I'm going to challenge you that this is really, really difficult, but it's the most important thing we'll talk about in this whole course. Um, the work of Hume and Immanuel Kant is an absolute watershed in the history of philosophy, and it's changed the way that every single one of you views the world. You're all Kantian without even knowing it um, in a very, very real sense. Uh, David Hume was a Scottish philosopher born in 1711, and he was part of that flowering movement which was known as the Scottish Enlightenment um, that gave the world its greatest philosopher, David Hume, and the world the greatest economist. Anyone know who that was? Same time as David Hume in Scotland, we get Adam Smith. Yeah, we get the world's greatest economist. So, right, this part of the world was known as the Scottish Enlightenment. And Hume was actually never a professor of philosophy. Some actual encyclopedias will refer to David Hume as David Hume historian, because he was a historian. Um, he was also an observer of religion. He has a pretty damning critique of uh, natural religion, which is one of his last works. Um, but he is primarily a philosopher, and we're going to look at him in that regard. Um, he was an a, uh, atheist, and he was an atheist that admitted that he was an atheist. And this is a radical thing to do in 1711, because n basically it's like admitting you're a Christian today. You can't advance very far. He was never given professorship, although his works were receiving great acclaim in the community at the time, because he was an, out, um, an outright atheist. Now, the Hume is an empiricist. He believes that all true knowledge comes through the senses, that we don't know anything innately, and everyone at this point up to Hume really believed the ideas of Locke and Barclay to a lesser extent, that we have no such thing as innate ideas. That was the in vogue view. But Hume sees a really, really deep problem. He says every single person has a core belief, certain things that they assume about the world that are fundamental to everything else they know about the world. Um, it's similar to in school, if anyone um, remembers doing web diagrams when they were in school, when they had to think of like an essay they were going to write. When I was in uh, middle school or even high school, they said, all right, Justin, I want you to write an essay on something. And what do you want to write your essay on? 
And I'd say, I want to write an essay on, uh, on baseball players. And they say, all right, make a circle around that baseball player. You need something more specific. So, all right, I want to talk about outfielders. Well, something more specific. I want to talk about outfielders on the Pittsburgh Pirates. Oh, more specific than that. I want to talk about Latin American outfielders on the Pittsburgh Pirates. I want to talk about, and it keeps getting more and more, um, oh, more specific. So you can actually write a real paper on it because you can't just write a paper on baseball, right? It's too broad. And eventually I come to, I'm going to write a paper on the death of Roberto Clemente, right? It's, it's really, really far away from the original topic, but it all dependent on this original idea that I had, this belief. Well, Hume says all of reality, everything that we know about the world, is dependent on a central belief, which is something that the senses does not give us. Right? So take a step back here. Hume says we can only know things for certain that we take in through the senses, but yet all of human belief is dependent on something that we can't take in through the senses. Now, for most of us, you would say, well, what is the core thing that you believe or you presuppose that changes the way you view about everything else. We would say whether we believe in God or not, right? You have certain beliefs, right? You talk about, well, I don't, uh, an atheist might look at you and say, I don't believe that that thing was a miracle, why? Because of so-and-so evidence. And then you ask why again. Well, because of this, why? Because of this. And eventually you get to the point because the world is matter and supernatural things can occur, right? Whereas you as a Christian would say, well, why do you believe that? Well, it seems reasonable. Why? And you go further and further back, and eventually you get to a place, I presuppose that God exists, so the supernatural is open to me, and supernatural things can happen, right? You presuppose that. But for Hume, there was something even more fundamental that we all assume we order our lives by this principle, but we cannot know it through the senses. And this is a huge, huge moment in philosophy. This is where Hume talks about the idea of causality causality. And this is the central component of David Hume's philosophy, the idea of cause and effect, the cause and effect of the world. We organize the world, every single thing that we do, based on this principle of cause and effect. If I drop this pen, what will happen? It will fall. And we're in the habit of saying, because you dropped the pen, you caused it to fall. Right? We make up this necessary connection between me dropping the pen and the pen falling. Well, why do we do that? Well, we do that because of experience, right? We don't do that because of any sort of reason. We've experienced a thousand times before dropping a pen and it falling. So we make the assumption that the future will necessarily resemble the past. But if I asked you a question, why is the future going to resemble the past? If I drop this pen, will it fall? All of you say yes. Why? Because you expect the future to resemble the past, but why? How do we know the future is going to be like the past? Well, because it's always been that way. That's not answering the question. That's just rephrasing the question, right? How do we know the future will resemble the past? How do we know there's a causal connection between me dropping this pen and it falling? Hume says we don't. We make that up because we see events happening. We see event A, me dropping the pen, Event B, the pen falling, and we say event A caused event B. Now, John, to give you a better example to try to get this idea enclosed in your mind, John Passmore wrote a great book called Hume's Intentions, and he gives an analogy talking about Hume's idea of cause and effect. And he says, imagine you're on a train, and you're a tourist on a train in a strange village, and you've never been there before. And you're riding along on the train, and these strange foreigners come up to you from whatever town you're in, 
and they offer you this weird yellow object to eat. And they say, this we call in our town a banana. And he says, take this thing, you peel it, and eat it. And the people have never seen this fruit before. And he says, imagine the man. He takes it, he says, honey, I'll try this, I'll be brave, I'll try this new banana. And he takes the banana, and he's on the train, and he bites into the banana. And the second he bites into the banana, the train enters a tunnel. And the train goes black. The man screams to his wife, don't eat the banana. It causes you to go blind. Don't eat the banana. And you're like, well, that's stupid. Of course the banana doesn't cause you to go blind. Imagine that man, for some weird instance, every single time in his life that he was eating banana, he happened to enter a tunnel. What would he think about bananas? Bananas, there's a necessary connection between the eating of a banana and you going blind. The banana causes you to go blind. Now, the banana wouldn't be causing him to go blind, would it? But he makes up the causal connection that just because event A followed right after event B, that event A was the cause of event B. But we don't see cause and effect in the world, do we? Has anyone ever seen cause and effect? No, you make up a necessary connection between simultaneous events, right? This is what is known in philosophy and the, the philosophy of logic as the cum hoc fallacy. It's actually cum hoc ergo proctor hoc, but we shorten it for cum hoc. The cum hoc fallacy, to assume that because events are successive, that the first event caused the second event. Now, the cum hoc fallacy we see will creep out into weird ways into superstition, right? Especially in uh, baseball is a very, very superstitious sport, right? If anyone follows the history of the Chicago Cubs, right? They said the Cubs were having a great season. They were about to win the World Series this year, and a black cat ran across the field. And that caused them to lose the game. Or you're t- uh, there's a b- baseball superstitious in the way where a pitcher has a no-hitter or is pitching a perfect game. What can you not do? Don't talk to him. Don't mention it to him, right? Nobody talks to him because you go over and say, hey, man, three more outs to get. And he gives up a hit. And you say, oh, you talked to him. And it caused him to give up the hit, right? Event A happened. You talked to him. Event B happened. He gave up the hit. You talking to him caused him to get the hit. And we all say that's ridiculous. Of course, that didn't cause that to happen. But why do you say, I dropped this pen? It caused it to fall. Because of habit and custom. So can we know for certain that the future will resemble the past? No. Especially if you're an atheist. If you're an atheist and you don't have a God of providence that preordains everything, a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever then an atheist cannot know the simple facts of the world that if I drop a pen, it will break. Or that if two plus two equals four, why? Well, for the Christian, he says, well, God's God's a God of order. He's going to keep things the same. He doesn't change. But for the atheist, why? Well, it always has been that way. Yes, but how do you know the future will resemble the past? We don't. And that's why David Hume's called the great skeptic. He's skeptical because he says, at best, our knowledge could be eh, kind of certain, We assume things are going to be the same as they used to be, but how could we ever know? We see the fallacy of cum hoc and this idea of causality played out all the time in the news media, right? Especially around times of election, right? If you watch the news around the time of an election, you hear these stupid stories every time. Elections cause people to spend money. The economy gets a little better right before an election because elections cause people to spend money. As if there's a causal connection between, oh, there's a presidential election and somebody saying, you know what, there's an election coming up, I need to go spend money. 
Nobody does that, but why? We assume it because event A happens and then event B happens. Well, there's real reasons why that happens, right? People spend more money around election time because normally you have an incumbent president and normally that president is not going to give you a huge tax hike right before he's up for re-election, right? Normally there's a slight tax decrease right before the election, so you have more money in your pocket. And when you have more money in your pocket, what do you do? You spend more money. Elections cause people to spend more money. No, no. Having more money causes people to spend money, right? In statistics, we see this fallacy all the time, right? In the realm of statistics, you see the cum hoc fallacy repeated. I read a survey, and I kid you not, four or five years ago, um, where statisticians had found a causal connection between the size of children's feet and the neatness of their handwriting. They say kids with big feet have better handwriting. It's statistically proven. If you have big feet, you'll have better handwriting. Right? Event A, the kid has big feet. Event B, better handwriting. Big feet causes handwriting. Well, why do you think that would be? Do you think there's a causal connection between the two? No. There's not a causal connection between the two, but kids with bigger feet would tend to be older more times than not. And so they've been writing longer, their penmanship's better, their motor skills are better developed, probably their hands are better, they can grip a pen like this as opposed to like this, so their penmanship would be better. But there's not a causal connection. But the idea of causality is deeply rooted in each and every one of us, right? Because how could you possibly live in a world where you don't assume causality, where you don't assume that the things that worked yesterday will work the same way today, right? You get in your car and you're like, I hope when I hit the accelerator, it still goes forward this time. We wouldn't be able to live like that. But we assume that not because of reason. We assume that because of custom. Now, that's a very, very important thing. So Hume is telling us we cannot know anything for certain. We can't. We have to be skeptical about everything because causality determines everything, the way we view the world. But yet we assume it because without it, we're left with nowhere to go. Now, Immanuel Kant's going to come along, and Kant's going to introduce the most important part of all of modern philosophy. Um, Kant was a man who was very, very eccentric in nature, very, very strange. I want to read to you his habits so you can see just how strange of a man Immanuel Kant was. Um, Kant awoke at 5 a.m. on the dot every single day of his life, not a minute earlier, not a minute later, at least according to his journals. He skipped breakfast every single day of his life and had a light lunch. He was so organized in his routine, the people of his town would actually set their watches according to his walks, because Kant walked past the exact same spot on the exact same time every single day. He was terrified of drinking coffee, refused to drink it. He thought the oils in it would be bad for you. He also believed um, that you couldn't sleep too much, and that's why he woke up at 5 a.m. every day. He thought that dying of natural causes meant you wasted all the sleep that you were given. You were given a certain amount of sleep when you were born, and if you oversleep, eventually that's how you would die of natural causes. If you don't get hit by a car or get cancer or something like that, you eventually you ran out of sleep and you died. Kant, every single day when he got into his bed, would start on the right side of his bed, and he would take the cover, and he would roll over exactly three times in the covers, and roll back exactly three times, and then repeat that process three times. So he'd be someone that we'd consider today obsessive-compulsive, right? He had some strange, strange things. And Kant, is a, uh, his philosophy 
might seem just as strange as his habits to some of you. And that's because Kant was kind of a jerk, um, for, less, um, for lack of a better term. He did not care about making his philosophy accessible to the lay people. He wrote for gentlemen, and he wrote for philosophers. And he said, if you're not smart enough to understand my work, be damned. You don't need to read it. You don't, you're not worthy of reading it. Bertrand Russell says that before Kant, philosophers were gentlemen, and they wrote for the lay people. And after Kant, philosophy post-Kant is very, very difficult because it becomes technical. Kant starts creating terms of his own, like we'll talk about today, noumena and phenomena and strange things that you're like, it turns you off from philosophy because you're like, well, those things aren't really just made those up. It's difficult. Um, but the importance of Kant is Kant is going to reconcile the empiricist tradition, those that believe that all knowledge comes through the senses, and the rationalist tradition. And he's going to do this in an amazing way. Kant was influenced most on the rationalist side by Gottfried's Wilhelm Leibniz, and on the empiricist side by the philosophy of David Hume. And he was torn as a young man between the rationalism of Leibniz and the empiricism of Hume. But eventually Kant found the empiricism and the skepticism of Hume's view of causality, which we just talked about, to be undeniable. That has to be true. Hume's view of causality was absolutely undeniable. And Kant says, Hume's causality awoken me from my dogmatic slumbers. And he woke up and in a flash he gave up the rationalism of Leibniz. And he was strictly Humean. And in this flash that he woke up from his dogmatic slumbers, he penned probably the most important philosophical treatise of modern times, post-Plato, and it's called The Critique of Pure Reason. It's 800 pages long, it's arduous, it's unbearable to go through. But in The Critique of Pure Reason, Kant gives us, now this is a big term, and I know there's a lot of stuff today, Kant gives us what's known as the Copernican, or the Kantian, Copernican Revolution. He gives us the Kantian Copernican Revolution. And this is called the Kantian Copernican Revolution because what Kant's about to do is as important for philosophy and the way we think about the world as was the astronomical findings of Copernicus. Right? Copernicus believed that the Earth was not the center of the universe, right? that the sun was the center of the universe. But he couldn't prove this until later. Right? Galileo comes along, he has the telescope, and he can say, oh yes, the sun is not... It is the center of the universe. The earth is not. And ever since then, all of science was completely shifted. We had to look at the world in a different way. Well, Kant's going to do the same thing for, for philosophy. He's going to say there is no such thing as strict empiricism, that all knowledge comes through the senses. There is no such thing as strict rationalism, that we're born with just innate principles. But what we have is a quasi-rational empiricism. We have a conglomeration of the two, partly rational, Partly empirical. Now, this is the most important thing we can get in this whole course, probably. Um, so follow me here. Kant says, we keep treating the world, these things that we see, as if we have direct knowledge of them. We treat this podium as if I can actually know things about it. I can just look at it and sense it. But every time I'm doing that, I'm doing something very, very unique. I'm not just viewing that podium as it actually is. I'm viewing it through certain lenses, or certain what Kant would call categories, ways that I can't possibly view the world in any other way. Kant says, every single one of us, we view the world through two most important lenses, space and time. Right? We view the world through space and time. 
But Kant started to realize what Augustine realized in 354, and eventually in the 1900s, what Einstein proved. Time is not real. Time is relative, right? We feel like time is a real thing, but it's only a category for humans to view the world, right? Einstein proved that if you travel at the speed of light and you're looking at the ticking of hand of a clock, what happens? It stands still. Because time is not objectively real. Time is only subjectively real. It feels real to you, but it's not actually real. Time does not flow equitably. Time is not a real thing. Space is not a real thing. Space is a way for humans to view the world. Time is a way for humans to view the world. That's why when we say God is timeless, he's actually outside of this made-up thing, which is for people to view the world. Now, it's hard to wrap your head around that, right? You all still, no, no, time's real. No, no, Einstein proved it's not real. It's relative. Time isn't real. And we kind of experience this in our day-to-day lives, right? You don't always feel like time flows equitably, do you? Right? If you go to the dentist and he's picking at you with that little metal thing right at your teeth for hours, you, you look and you're like, how long have I been here? It's three hours? And he's like, six minutes. Right? That doesn't feel like that. But if you're at a party and you're having a great time and you look down and you're like, oh my Lord, four hours have gone by. It feels like five minutes. Right? Because time's not equitable. Time flows. It speeds up and slows down. Time's not real. Time came into existence with the creation of the universe. If the universe was not here, there would be no such thing as time. That's what we mean when we say God is outside of time. It's not like he's very, very old, right? He's been around for a long time. No, no, he's not bound by these made-up categories of space and time. So think about this. I look at that podium, but I have to view it, what Kant says, through the irremovable lenses of space and time. He says they're like glasses that have been glued to my head and I can't take them off. Can I see that podium outside of time? No. Can I see it not in space? No. So am I actually ever experiencing the podium as it actually is? No. What am I seeing? A subjective, humanized, individualized, justinized version of that podium, and then I say, this is the real thing. No, it's not. That's in object, that's a subjective thing. It's not actually getting to the thing in and of itself. Kant says the real world, what is actually real, he calls the noumena, right? The noumena is what Kant calls the actual physical reality of the world. But he says when we try to get to the noumena, the real podium, I have to filter those things. You get a pen that works. I have to filter these things through the two lenses of space and time. So imagine those are the glasses, right? That's real stuff out there, but it has to be filtered through space and time. By the time I get to it, I'm not seeing the real thing anymore. I'm seeing what Kant calls the phenomena, or a less real version, or a subjective version of the thing. Now, this is very, very important. Why? Why is this important for us as, as, as Christians? Why is this important for the world to understand this principle? What has Kant done here by unearthing this principle, which is true? Kant has separated our union from ultimate reality. He's ontologically separated us from what is actually real. He's saying, you cannot get to truth. You can get a subjective version of truth. You can never get 
truth. You can't know things for certain. It's impossible, unless you know some way to get outside of space and time. And until you can figure that, you can't get to the truth. So Kant says there's certain things that are in the noumena, in the actual real world. He says, what, what things would be in the noumena? Things that humans would not be able to get to because of space and time. What things would be in this noumena? What, what are things that humans would not have access to because we're limited by space and time? We already talked about one. Well, God would be the biggest one, right? We can't get to God because God is outside of space and time. So Kant has ontologically separated our union from, with Christ. We can't get there. He's outside of space and time. So can we know God? No. We only know a subjective version that how do we know it's real? How do we know it's true? We can't claim complete truth. So God is in the noumena. He says the self is in the noumena, or the thing in itself, he calls it, right? The pen as it actually exists noumenally. In and of itself, we can never get to that. So we are separated from ultimate reality. We can't know anything for certain. And this is where the modern world is left still. Post-Kant, the modern world is left, and this is what ends up leading to postmodernism, right? The idea that everything's relative, that's true for you, but not true for me. I can believe this over here, and you can believe that over there, and they can both simultaneously be true. Why? Because neither of us have access to the truth, so truth is relative, right? That's what the whole modern world says all the time, right? They don't know that they say this because of Kant. You don't know that you think this way because of Kant, but you do. Is there hope, though? The modern world has no hope. The modern world is stuck in what we would call an ateleological, non-teleological, no design, sea of contingency. There is just complete open-ended nothingness. We can't know anything for certain because we are separated from the noumena and we can't get to the noumena. The only acceptable answer to Kant's Copernican revolution, which is correct, is the incarnation. Because what is the incarnation? It's God who's in the noumena, crashing through space and time and entering the phenomena. God is not outside of space and time. Why? Because he came into space and time. He came into the categories that humans could understand him. Right? C.S. Lewis constantly talks about the idea that mankind always anthropomorphizes God. Right? We always try to make God look like us. Right? We can't think of this omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful being who is outside of space and time. What does that look like? You can't. And we couldn't get to him. Just like in Pastor's sermon today, Jacob couldn't go wrestle God. What happened? God had to come wrestle Jacob. He had to enter space and time. And that's why we can know God. Right? It's, 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 you'll hear a pastor uh, periodically say, we can't ontologically get behind the back of Christ. Right? There is no God hidden behind Christ. Right? Because what would that look like? We would never be able to know that. That is God. God, God becoming man is God. That is fully God. Christ is fully man, but fully God. And without the incarnation, truth is impossible. It's not just theologically impossible. It's not just biblically impossible. It's philosophically, logically impossible. The modern world cannot claim anything to be true. But John 1.1 says, the word became flesh, right? The logos became flesh or the logic, right? Logos is logic. The understanding of the world became flesh 
And that's the only way we can know truth because the incarnation had to happen. Otherwise, we could never get there. We're stuck by space and time. That's the power of the incarnation philosophically. It's huge. And the modern world, the philosophical world, is stymied by Kant. They can't move past him. They can't move beyond him. And all they can do from now on, and this is all you see in modern philosophy, is arguing about the language that we use. We play language games. Well, what did that really mean in that context, this and that? But you can never say, that is definitively true. Why? Because we're cut off from that. Unless somehow the noumena can break into the phenomena. And that's the hope that we have. And that's a lot, a lot of information right there. Anyone have any questions on that? Yeah. No, Kant denies the incarnation. And we're going to see, if you, so if you're an atheist, Kant is now going to be skeptical just like Hume. He's going to say, well, we can't have certain knowledge. And that's why Hume's called this great, great skeptic and Kant follows in that tradition. And what we'll see later on is Kantian ethics and how weird and skewed ethics gets in a post-Kantian world. In a world where the whole world universally denies that we can't get to truth, but yet tries to set up ethical principles. You must treat people this way. We must have equality. You have, in the words of the framers, unalienable rights. What do those things mean? They're meaningless post-Kant. But you'll see how Kant tries to play around with that. He wants to deny God, but then kind of sneak him back in when he needs to use him for ethics because he realizes the world's absurd without it. Yeah, but Kant is aware of the incarnation, certainly. Denies it. And it's going to lead him to some really, really weird waters, which Nietzsche the greatest atheist, um, because he's the only, as, as you will like, Anthony, he's the only epistemologically self-conscious atheist probably that ever lived. He is going to show the absurdity of Kant's ethics. He says, don't deny God and then still try to bring in ethical norms. Um, and we'll talk about that later on throughout this course. Any other questions? It's a lot of stuff. So major things to take away, Hume's idea of causality today, right? Cause and effect is not necessarily real. We make up the idea of necessary connection based on habit. It's not real. Mankind has to view the world through certain categories, and space and time aren't the only one. We have categories like numbers, right? When I look at you, I say there's 20 of you. Well, 20 is not a real thing. Has anyone ever seen 20 before? You've seen 20 of something, but numbers are a category that don't exist that we view the world through, just like space is, just like time is. But humans have this innate things built into us, space, time, quantity, quality, that we can't break away from. And because of those, we see the world in a certain way, right? That's the rationalist part of Kant. The empiricist part of Kant is, well, we still have to go experience it and then filter it through those lenses, right? So that's why it's quasi-rational, quasi-empirical. Um, that's a lot today. We'll close in prayer and get you guys out of here. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come here and talk about these um, fundamental principles um, behind the way that we think, uh, whether we know that they're behind them or not. Um, and we thank you for the incarnation because without it, we would not know who you were and how to worship you and how to order our lives because the truth had to become flesh in order for us to understand it. So uh, we uh, praise you for that wonderful, wonderful truth. And we thank you for... Uh, giving us access to you in the form of Christ. In your name we pray, amen.